Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good afternoon, everybody. It's um, wonderful to see New York Zendo so full after the pandemic, which we're still more or less stuck in, mired in, like Groundhog Day, um, to see new faces along with very old faces and younger students along with the older students. It's, it's just a wonderful thing. It makes me very happy. So this is a Pari Nirvana Day session. And we had our Pari Nirvana Day ceremony this morning. So for the benefit of the newer students and perhaps for the older students as well, I thought I'd say just a few words about what Parinirvana is, what it means, what its significance is. Um, essentially, Parinirvana is the, refers to the day of Buddha's death, but also refers to the condition of Nirvana that follows the end of the final cycle of life and death. So nirvana that no longer is either supported or dragged down, depending on your frame of mind, by having a body. It's, think of it as nirvana, but you don't have to brush your teeth. So nirvana after death, and what happens after this last cycle of life and death, according to um, Buddhist philosophy, um, the Buddha nature is fully revealed. The Buddha nature that we all have within us that is so hard for us to maintain awareness of, to fully inhabit, is fully inhabited at Parinirvana. It's no longer dependent on any conditions. Um, this condition, to use the fancy jargon, is sometimes called Tathagata um, <laughs> Garba, which means the womb of suchness, the womb of the Tathagata. You can think of it, if you're a science fiction fan, you can think of it as the matrix. It's the condition that is unborn and therefore not subject to birth and death. The condition which is not conditioned 
and therefore not dependent on anything whatsoever, a completely independent condition. Not relying on the six senses and therefore not a matter of perception or non-perception and invariable, unchanging, since it's not born and not subject to conditions, it is not subject to change. So this is the condition that the Buddha enters into at the end of his death. Um, it's not something which can be logically debated or logically understood. It is more or less um, what Kyozan is talking about in case 25 of the Mumon Khan, Kyozan's dream, where he dreams that he goes up to heaven and Maitreya tells him to take the third seat and then suddenly he's charged with giving an impromptu Taisho. And he comes up to the rostrum and he says, the truth of Mahayana is beyond the four propositions and the hundred negations. Basically means that if you're trying to wrap your head around it, you will try forever because it's not something you can wrap your head around. It's not something logical. It's not something that can be parsed. It's wholly beyond. So that's Parinirvana. And on a more practical note and dropping all of the jargon and philosophical speculation, it is an opportunity for us to think about life and death, and particularly the latter, death, the death of Buddha, the death that awaits us all. And as far as religion is concerned, and not just Buddhism, but any religion, the contemplation of death is extremely important. It's not something to push away. It's something to have in the front of your mind, not in the back of your mind, that all things are impermanent and falling away constantly. Birth and death is constantly occurring both within us and around us. There are millions of little births and deaths within our body every day. They're called cells. Cells being created, cells being destroyed. Thoughts arising, thoughts falling away. Delusions arising, delusions falling away sensations arising, sensations falling away. And then there's the big death, which is the end of this 
temporary body, this temporary home that we have. And to really embrace the idea that we have a finite amount of time, at least in this temporary body, to get it right, to open our hearts, to open our minds, to embrace the unconditioned, to embrace the unborn, to fully be at peace, to explore the qualities of the bodhisattva, to explore the vows of the bodhisattva, and to explore the teachings of the Buddha, And the teachings of the Buddha right now um, will form the body of the rest of this talk, and specifically the Four Noble Truths. I've been going through this series of Buddhism by the numbers um, and talking about all of the lists that we have in Buddhism. And number four is one of the, the great lists, uh, the four great vows for all, the four Brahma-Viharas, the four noble truths. And the four noble truths have such richness to them as a framework for us to understand how this world of ours functions how this mind of ours function, how our heart functions, even how our body functions, and how we can find our own way to the realization of our Buddha nature, which is not any different from the Buddha's Buddha nature, unconditioned, unborn. And it's such a large topic, the Four Noble Truths, that today I'm only going to talk about the first of the four, Dukkha. Dukkha, usually in the West translated as suffering, which is one flavor of dukkha, um, unsatisfactoriness, alienation. These are other flavors of dukkha. But it's one of those words that has such a rich meaning, so many different layers of meaning 
that it's probably best not to translate it and just leave it as dukkha. In the Theravadan tradition, they're very good at parsing all of the concepts of uh, Buddhist philosophy. And in one of their sutras, they talk about three different kinds of dukkha. There's dukkha dukkha, which is unsatisfactoriness, unsatisfactory, the sun, which is really just the suffering of being in a body with a mind. It's the, all of the physical, emotional, psychological discomforts that this body and this mind are heir to. Anybody who has done Zazen has explored this particular form of dukkha in a very profound way. All of the different kinds of pain that is possible to suffer, whether it's pain in your knee, your hip, your spirit, your mind, your soul. There's no better way of really exploring and getting the full flavor of dukkha than doing zazen. Then there's viparanama dukkha which is the dukkha of change. And the thing about change is that in general, we don't like it. We're firmly opposed to it. We would prefer to have things stay as they are. Unless they've changed into a condition that we don't like. And then we don't like it because of that change. So the dukkha of change is what we encounter with the poisons of greed or grasping and aversion. Things we don't like, we want to push away. Things we do like, we want to gather in and hold on to. And this creates suffering. And the third kind of dukkha, Sankara dukkha, is the suffering of existence itself, which is to say that dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, is inherent in all existence one of the three marks of existence, along with impermanence and non-self. So this is the theoretical framework, but we really don't want to spend our time on theory. 
we want to spend our time looking into how these things operate in our lives. And to do that, I'm going to look into the Super Bowl. I don't know if any of you are football fans. If you're not, and you would rather use some other samsaric activity rather than the Super Bowl, you can think of a trading day on the stock market or the changing of the weather. But the Super Bowl is a really, really rich form of dukkha. Hospitals are also a great form of dukkha. But since the Super Bowl was last week and everybody has some experience with the Super Bowl, I'll use that. And so the Super Bowl. I, I assume that even people who are not football fans have some familiarity with what the Super Bowl is. There are these two teams playing the game of football, American football, the object of which is for one team who has control of the football to move the football down the field and bring it to the other team's end zone. And when they do that, they score some points. And at the end of the game, the more points you have, you win. So essentially it is pretty much like any other game. There are agreed upon rules and the object is somewhat arbitrary capricious, completely unimportant in any objective sense. It certainly doesn't matter whether one team moves the ball in one direction or the other team moves the ball in another direction in any meaningful way in anybody's life. But there is the shared delusion that this is vitally important which is similar to the shared delusion that um, the person who has accumulated the most property or the most dollars or the most power at the end of their life wins. Very similar delusion, except that one is recognized as a game and the other is generally not recognized as a game, but thought of as being life, our society, our culture, our way of life, our way of government, our way of business, all based on delusion. But because they are popularly shared delusions, they take on a life of their own. And 
become a very rich source of dukkha. So in the Super Bowl, one team is trying to stop the other team from moving the ball. They're banging into each other, piling on top of each other. There's all kinds of physical suffering, all kinds of physical discomfort. There's all kinds of mental and emotional turmoil, not only on the part of the players, but of the fans who are going crazy in the stands or at home watching on television, investing an immense amount of mental and emotional energy in a game which has no objective importance in their life. a game which is governed by rules that have no bearing on how they themselves live their lives, but which is considered vitally important. And again, I'm using the Super Bowl and football as an example, but it applies to um, what college you went to, um, where you go to work, how you dress, all of these things, they uh, acquire an importance because of shared delusion, which objectively speaking is hard to understand. You know, if you imagine a Martian coming and looking and saying, well, you know, this person is, is dressed and has shelter and all of the comforts that they could possibly want, why are they working to have more uh, money than they could possibly ever spend? Why are they trying to buy a much larger house that they can't afford? It doesn't really make any sense. But there's a shared delusion that whoever has the most toys at the end of the game wins. So that's dukkha. And the physical and emotional discomfort of the spectators and the players is also matched by the effect that change has on them. The change of what's called a good play or a bad play. Did you gain yards? Did you lose yards? Did you get a point? Did you lose a point? And all of the emotional and mental contortions that that occasions. Same thing in life. Did you get a promotion? Did you graduate magna cum laude or summa cum laude? Or did you just barely scrape by? All of these things which 
are treated as of vital importance and in which we invest a huge amount of mental, emotional energy that in the long run have no importance. And when change occurs that we think is good, so often it just becomes another source of stress because then we want to hold on to whatever it is that happened that we think is good. Or we simply can't get used to the change and are stressed because of that. So how to deal with dukkha? How to deal with this unsatisfactoriness in a way that can help can help us raise ourselves out of the mud puddle that we find ourselves in. And as I so often do, I'm going to fall back on Bodhidharma. This is uh, a quote from his wake up sermon. I lightly edited it to make it a little bit um, shorter and more to the point. Mortals liberate Buddhas and Buddhas liberate mortals. Mortals liberate Buddhas because affliction creates awareness. And Buddhas liberate mortals because awareness negates affliction. If it weren't for affliction, there would be nothing to create awareness. And if it weren't for awareness, there would be nothing to negate affliction. When you're deluded, Buddhas liberate mortals. When you're aware, mortals liberate Buddhas. Buddhas regard delusion as their father and greed as their mother. Delusion and greed are different names for mortality. Uh, I, I sometimes think that the best thing that you can do with these kind of texts is just to read them over and over again until the words sink in. And so I'm going to read it one more time after I take a drink of water. And then we'll talk about liberation, affliction, mortals and Buddhas. But first, and actually before I 
read Bodhidharma's words again. I'd like to share a couple of short poems with you that are germane to this topic of life and death, mortality, awareness, and dukkha. The first is by, they're both Japanese poems. One is by Hariwara no Narihara. And that is, I have always known that at last I would take this road. But yesterday, I did not know that it would be today. I have always known that at last I would take this road. But yesterday, I did not know that it would be today. And then there's this one by Fujiwara no Kiyosuke. I may live on until I long for this time in which I am so unhappy and remember it fondly. I may live on until I long for this time in which I am so unhappy and remember it fondly. So mortals liberate Buddhas and Buddhas liberate mortals. Mortals liberate Buddhas because affliction creates awareness. In the life of Shakyamuni Buddha, training did not begin until affliction created awareness. That is to say, he lived a pampered life, kept safe and far away as much as possible from all suffering. Kept from experiencing the three different forms of dukkha. Kept from seeing illness, old age, and death. Kept from seeing the impermanence of all things. And when he became aware of affliction, his education began. And this is just what happens in our own training. It is not until we become aware of affliction that we look for cessation of affliction, which is the third noble truth. Cessation of dukkha, the end of dukkha. To get to the end of dukkha, one must first fully explore dukkha, fully understand dukkha, 
fully get to the bottom of dukkha, what is the origin of dukkha? How does it arise? Why does it arise? Affliction creates first the thirst for awareness. Creates the thirst for understanding. All of the people in the Super Bowl cheering were pummeling each other, whether they're spectators or players. There's an agreed upon delusion that they have, which keeps them locked in that particular kind of dukkha. And we, th you know, we think of dukkha as unsatisfactory because it's painful. That's that translation of suffering. But it's not just the painful and unpleasant aspects of life that are dukkha. It's the seductive and exciting and spine tingling and uproarious parts of life that are also a kind of dukkha, a kind of seduction, a kind of bringing you in so that you no longer have awareness, so that you're comfortable and even entertained and amused and titillated by this, this particular form of unsatisfactoriness, this conditioned existence. That's also dukkha, but it's exciting. It feels good. We want to hold on to it, which is the essence of dukkha. We want to hold on to it. Or we want to get rid of it. Either way, pleasant or unpleasant, both dukkha. Mortals liberate Buddhas because affliction creates awareness. And Buddhas liberate mortals because awareness negates affliction. The whole idea behind mindfulness, mindfulness as not just a slogan, but mindfulness as a way of fully appreciating one's life, fully appreciating one's experience, fully appreciating one's delusions, fully appreciating one's afflictions and difficulties. It's a very, very fundamental aspect of Buddhist practice. It's a very fundamental aspect of Zen practice. Awareness, attention, attention, paying attention. All the emphasis placed on doing things in the Zendo just right, having things just right, 
it's not because we are engaged in the delusion that somehow having the altar look exactly right somehow propitiates a God called Buddha and will bring good fortune upon us. It's because this is our practice, the practice of attention, the practice of acting as if this is vitally important because paying attention is vitally important. Creating an atmosphere in which attention assumes the importance that it should have in our lives, in our way of being, in our way of exploring our heart and our mind, exploring this moment, fully inhabiting this moment. That's what attention is. That's what mindfulness is. Fully inhabiting this, this. Breaking down barriers between our so-called individual wants and desires, our ego and this. That's awareness. Fully inhabiting this moment. If it weren't for affliction, there would be nothing to create awareness. If not for dukkha, what would you be aware of? This pain that you have in your knee or your hip when you're doing zazen. It's not something to fight. It's not something to regard as the enemy. This feeling of tightness in your breath when you do Zazen, if you become aware of it and become relaxed with it, just hanging out with it, not trying to do anything, not trying to get rid of it, just noticing it. Just being aware and the affliction vanishes. If it weren't for awareness, there would be nothing to negate affliction. All of the dukkha involved in our various delusions, whether it's the Super Bowl or trading on Wall Street, or trying to get into a great school, all of our delusions, all of the things that we think are so important, once we become aware 
there's a shift that occurs. We can still act as if these things are vitally important. We can still cheer in the Super Bowl. We can still engage in our daily business activities and do them with full attention and full engagement, knowing that there is an element of complete unreality to all of this. Acting as if these things are objectively important. And the same goes for how we behave in the Zendo, making sure that everything is exactly right, that we bow in the proper fashion, that our robe is fastened in the proper fashion, acting as if these are vitally important. Knowing that they have no independent objective importance whatsoever. But as a vehicle for expressing our dedication, our real desire to help those involved in this same path. being aware that this as if is just as important as everything else. When you're deluded, Buddhas liberate mortals. When you're deluded, Buddhas liberate mortals. Bodhidharma in another sermon talks about this shore and the other shore, which goes back to the Prajnaparamita Sutra, the Shingyo, Hanya Shingyo, the Heart Sutra. And Gate, gate, parasam gate, bodhisvaha. Gone, gone, gone to the other shore. When you're a Buddha, there is no other shore. There's neither this shore nor the other shore. When you have parinirvana, there's only this, not this shore and the other shore. 
but out of love and compassion, Buddhas liberate mortals and carry them to the other shore. When you're aware, mortals liberate Buddhas. That is to say, mortals give Buddhas something to do. Buddhas regard delusion as their father and greed as their mother. Delusion and greed are different names for mortality. Delusion as their father and greed as their mother. Two of the three poisons. How is it that they give birth to Buddhas? And that will be the question that I leave for you. How do Buddhas come about? Why is delusion the father and greed the mother of Buddhas? And how do we wake up from our Super Bowl hangover? And that's all I have for you today.